turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Indeed it is. Hour number two is underway now at eight minutes past ten o'clock on this Tuesday, the 13th morning of the 11th month of the year of our Lord, 2018. And the election that began one week ago still isn't over. Here in Palm Beach County and here in Broward, they have not yet started the recount. They're separating here in Broward, page one, from all the other ballots. That process started yesterday afternoon after many delays for various reasons, new machines and discussions over ballot security. But they expect sometime this morning, perhaps around 8 or 9 a.m., to actually begin the recount. And Lord only knows what's going to happen when that happens, when it's being led in Broward County by Dr. Brenda Snipes, who doesn't know the definition of the word canvassing, uh, and Lord knows what's going to happen in Palm Beach County as well. That's just one of the stories we're going to discuss now with our friend Peter Now, Peter, of course, is a Cleveland attorney. He is a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. And uh, I was told this morning, Peter, that... Uh, and when I woke up this morning, I was feeling pretty dangerous. Is that true, uh, Peter Kirstenow? Feeling pretty dangerous today? <laughs> That's one of the great lines of all time. you got to love a guy who says that, you know? <laughs> I do. 341 days to the World Series, Bob, but I tell you what, I, I look forward to every week with Baker Mayfield. He's the kind of quarterback we need. Let's just keep hope he uh, you know, starts every game 13 for 13. I want to hear the president channel about Baker Mayfield and just open up a press conference. <laughs> I, I just want him to open up a press conference and say, just, it just, by the way, hey, Jim Acosta, just so you know. I was feeling pretty dangerous. Yeah, I would just, that would be, <laughs> that would be pretty good. All right, Pete, uh, silliness over, uh, so much, uh, going on. I mean, 
I just interviewed Eric Eggers, who wrote a book called Fraud, How the Left Plans to Steal the Next Election. He is spot on. He has a history, an entire chapter devoted to the chicanery and the duplicity and the uh, and the corruption and the incompetence of Brenda Snipes and Broward County as it pertains going all the way back. Uh, well, she wasn't on the board uh, or the su- supervisor in two- 2000 when uh, Al Gore and, uh, and President Bush had their problems, but she has been for 15 years and multiple instances of fraud, of instances of uh, violations of court orders to uh, retain and, and uh, uh, preserve ballots and all of these other things. I mean, I, I, I just, I've never seen anything quite like this. Uh, two duly elected individuals, uh, Rick Scott and uh, Ron DeSantis, literally in the process, watching before their very eyes, watching the left steal elections from them, Pete. Yeah, you know, it's curious. You probably have noticed this also, and I'm sure your listeners have, that it's remarkable how whenever new ballots are found, they always favor Democrats. Exactly. It's, it's really incredible. I guess it's an electoral coincidence, but I'll tell you that um, I've had a little bit of involvement in this, just kind of tangentially. The U.S. Commission on Civil Rights investigated the uh, presidential election in Florida of 2000. And I remember writing a uh, very extensive report on this, most of which I can't remember, but I was amazed at, first of all, the incompetence that you would find. But second, there was a real plan on the part of Democrats. Republicans are like babes in the woods. It's truly astonishing. They keep seeing this over and over and over again but failed to take the necessary action to correct it. I don't mean to paint a broad brush brush against all Republicans, but in Florida, this is something that's been going on for quite some time. We've had a number of Republican governors in place who could take action to at least begin to address the problems in Florida, and they are are manifold. There are just so many. I'm not sure that anyone can get a real handle on it. But, uh, you know, they're, they're really, I, I haven't seen any evidence that the various succession, succession of Republican governors, including Jeb Bush, did much to correct the problems that it displayed themselves so evidently during the 2000 election. And, and it's truly extraordinary what goes on there. The, the uh, illegal aliens that vote, the uh, convicted felons that vote, uh, so many that vote, and, and those that vote who aren't entitled to vote always vote Democrat. Ninety-five percent of convicted felons, when they do vote, vote for, for Democrats. Um, illegal, illegal aliens, I used to have the exact percentage, but it's still an extraordinary percentage. It's 88 to 90 percent. Mm-hmm. So, and as you probably saw, um, at least some lawyers for the Democrats wanted Broward County, well, all the ballots uh, of illegal aliens to be counted. So right. That's that's what not, not only that, Pete. Not only the illegal alien part, but I was talking to Eric Eggers about this too. And you give me your thoughts on this. If I understand the rules correctly, um, overseas ballots, uh, you know, for, uh, ballots cast by mail from uh, overseas are men and women fighting all around the world, whose votes kind of count, kind of matter here. By the way, they're the ones preserving our right to have them. But um, they have up to ten days to have those ballots received. After ten days, those will not be counted. But they have to after ten up to ten days after the actual election, those overseas ballots will count. Well, there are thousands. Thousands of other ballots that have have come in late by mail, absentee ballots that have come in late by mail, just from people in the state of Florida, not overseas. And the Democrats have filed lawsuits saying we have to count all of those, too. How can they change the rules like that a full week after the election? Power, that's why. 
A couple things. First of all, you might recall during the 2000 election, the Democrats did everything they could to make sure that the overseas veterans ballots or overseas military ballots weren't counted. They they moved heaven and earth to make sure that didn't happen. But when you've got what the Democrats are very good at, you've got to give them credit for this, is when they get in power, they know how to use the levers of government to benefit Democrats. Maybe not people, but <laughs> but Democrats. And they will ensconce their people within all of the appointed positions, all the administrative positions, to make sure that if there's some discretion when it comes to a vote, <laughs> one of their people exercises the discretion. On top of that, you saw how quickly they had boosted on the ground during the election, not after the election, during the election. When they started seeing how close it was, they saw what they saw in back in Minnesota when Al Franken won over Norm Coleman, when uh, Gore and Bush were so close, they immediately sent in the shock troops. And Republicans, not to say that they uh, are late to the game, they just play by the rules. And unfortunately, the rules um, don't matter to many Democrats. Most importantly, they don't matter to the media either, which is nothing but the propaganda arm for Democrats. And whenever there's something close, the media will do whatever they can to obfuscate and to make it appear as if Republicans are the ones who don't want to have every vote counted. You know, that that, uh, beautiful phrase. But the key is having positions, people in place in the positions that make discretionary decisions about whether certain ballots are counted or polls will remain open. You know, they'll go to judges to do that. But they pull out all the stops. And Republicans play by the rules. Um, And I'm not saying that they should not play by the rules, but uh, there's not the degree of urgency that I see. I saw it in Florida when we examined that. The Democrats, my goodness, it is election day for them is what they live for. Most Republicans, aside from elected officials, Bob, you and me, we, we go about our daily lives. Most Republicans want to simply go about their daily lives, and they're not so focused on the machinations of the voting process. And I think that's a problem. It's something we have to take a really hard look at and try to get more troops involved, more volunteers involved, to watch the polls, do, do all the things necessary to preserve the integrity of an election. Yeah, I, I completely concur. And, and you know, it's really sad to me or, 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 you know, shocking to me, whatever you want to say, is that you know, yesterday we celebrated Veterans Day, and, and this is what they fought for. This is what those who died died for. This is what those who laid it on the line for, is is to protect the integrity of the vote. I mean, it's our most sacrosanct right is to vote on our own government and vote on our own leadership. And the fact that they are being stolen from us, or at least it appears they're being stolen from us by these uh, unscrupulous people is... Uh, is just beyond the pale. So, so we go from, from, uh, uh, Florida, Pete, and I want to pivot just a little bit here before we take our break. I want to pivot to, um, another part of our constitution, uh, and I want to talk about, uh, the removal of your friend and, uh, and, and, uh, uh, former, now former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, uh, which we talked about last week and the uh, appointment of Matthew uh, Whitaker to the position of, of interim or acting attorney general before the president can appoint a new one that would then go through the advice and consent process with the Senate. The left is all over this, and I want to get your opinion. The uh, state of Maryland, in fact, today filed a federal lawsuit uh, to stop Whitaker from taking over and actually assuming that position, uh, arguing that he was not um, somebody like the deputy AG who was confirmed by the Senate through their advice and consent, and thus he is not eligible to be appointed by the president to this position right now. Clearly, they're afraid he, who has criticized the Mueller investigation, is going to end it. Um, are they right? Does the president have a right to have Mr. Whitaker in this position right now? The short answer, Bob, is nobody knows. 
because it's not been adjudicated. And to the extent you see any talking heads on television or people pining on the radio, they don't know what they're talking about. They're, they're talking out of their hat. Um, and that includes me. Except I will tell you that I don't know because it hasn't been adjudicated. But here's what I can do. I can give you some some guidance. Um, because, as it turns out again, I've kind of uh, skimmed by this issue because I was involved tangentially, at least I was named, uh, in the course of the opinion written by the Supreme Court in New Process Steel and also had litigated with respect to the vacancies clause and the appointments clause as pertained to the National Labor Relations Board and some litigation I've been involved in. So I've actually been right in the middle of the freight. Short answer is that most likely the president can do what he did. Now, what most of the Democrats and people on the left who say he couldn't do what he did point to is um, uh, the appointments clause of the Constitution. But the appointments clause of the Constitution is not clear on that point. So to clarify it, in other words, here's what happened. Whitaker gets appointed. He was never in a Senate-confirmed position before he gets appointed acting AG. And what the left is saying is, and all these pundits are saying, and, and there's some people of goodwill on the right who say this also, is someone who's not been previously confirmed by the Senate may not be in an acting position um, that requires Senate confirmation. But there's no case law with respect to that. But more importantly, there are some guidances that indicate that that can happen for this reason. There's something called the Vacancies Reform Act of 1998, and one of the reasons why that was passed is for this very circumstance, because they didn't want to have vacancies um, pertain for considerable periods of time while the Senate acted on confirmation. Just look at the travails we went through with respect to Kavanaugh. So in order to fill some of these appointment positions, important positions, the Vacancy Reform Act allows the president to name an acting officer, not somebody who's permanent, but somebody who's acting if he's been in a high-level position within that department for a considerable period of time, uh, 90 days or more. But he can only be in the acting position for several months, and I think the limit is 210 days. So if you look at the Vacancies Reform Act, which fills in the gaps left by the Constitution and the lack of decisional authority on this, it would appear as if the president has the authority to do it. But there's no definitive law on this. And when you have, uh, I know you had uh, sent to me earlier this morning, apparently Maryland has filed a Maryland, right. on this. Yes. Well, just as we saw with DACA, just as we saw with the, Im the immigration issues that the president has come up with, with respect to the travel ban, et cetera, you're going to be able to find somebody, I guarantee you, because there's no controlling, as they put it, controlling legal authority, as Al Gore would say, on this issue, you're going to find somebody who at least momentarily will say, nope, they, they got They got an Obama-appointed federal judge. It's Ellen Hollander. don't know if you're familiar or not, but it's an Obama-appointed no, no, no. judge. Who's going to be no, making no, this no. decision? And I don't want to. I don't necessarily ascribe to that person political motivation. But what I'm saying is, I that will. I think that Democrats probably look for a favorable form in which to bring an action. And because there's, you know, a little bit of uncertainty, I think that you could find that you'll you'll have federal judges who can make a plausible case for why what the president did in terms of act, uh, naming Whitaker is unlawful. But I think the best law on this, that is Congress passed something to clarify this, I think justifies what he did. And 
Look, there are also some DOJ opinions on this, as I understand it. I've not seen them, although I've, I've read reviews of them that indicate that um, the uh, Office of Legal Counsel, which is the office that opines on these kinds of things, is the proprietary, uh, proprietariness uh, of, of, of something like this, uh, says so that this can be done, and I think that's the best okay. reading of it. And, and Pete, I want to pause here and get our time out because I don't want to talk about why the president made this. It, it could be viewed as a preemptive move when the president fired uh, uh, Sessions last week and appointed Mr. Whitaker to this position in advance of what we saw last night, which is a preview of the Democrat agenda, which is not legislate. It is investigate. They are going to use what is being called a subpoena cannon, like the T-shirt cannons in a basketball game, to fire them at everybody with an R after their name uh, on Capitol Hill or in the Trump White House. So the president, of course, is looking for defense here, and perhaps that's why he chose Mr. Whitaker. I'll give you a chance to comment on that, Pete, when we come right back on AM 1420, The Answer. Information, visit kellybluebooks.kbb.com. All right, 1025, right back to Peter Kirsten now with some thoughts on... Uh, on what is going on on Capitol Hill right now, we know that the Democrats, Pete, took back the House with the vote one week ago today, and we knew that they were going to have a radical agenda. Some wondered whether it would be legislative or investigative in nature, and we know now know the answer. It is going to be all about investigations. They want to subpoena virtually everybody involved with the Trump administration, with the Trump campaign. They're going after Russia. They're going after so much more. Um, is that why the president, you believe, uh, decided he needed to get rid of Jeff Sessions, who had recused himself from anything having to do with Russia, and put somebody else in who could be a little bit more from the DOJ's perspective? Not that he's the president's personal attorney, but could be a little bit more advantageous to him. I think that's probably part of it. I, I do think that if the Democrats pursue this line, which apparently this is what they always intended to do, even though they try to claim that they were not going to be uh, exclusively focused on this. Everybody knew that that was a fiction. But I think that that's a problem for them. And I think you know, look, the, the president should do whatever he can to make sure that this doesn't go completely off the rails to the extent it hasn't already gone off the rails with respect to all these investigations. We've had a Mueller probe and an FBI investigation that succeeded more than two years now with absolutely nothing other than to show that it was Democrats, if anyone, who was colluding with Russians. But beyond that, yeah, I mean, again, I go back to what this country is all about, and if we're all about investigations as opposed to making things better from a constitutional republic standpoint for the American people, then uh, I, I think we're in, in really bad shape. Uh, this is a troubling period of time that we're in, where the Congress of the United States devotes itself to uh, the, you know, the old standard phrase of politics of personal destruction. That's precisely what it is when you look at the Kavanaugh hearings, and now they're going to continue to go after Donald Trump. Thank goodness Donald Trump is one of the toughest uh, hombres we've ever seen in the presidency, and he seems to relish this kind of combat, but nonetheless, this doesn't do anything to advance the prospects of the American people. And I think Democrats may be playing to their base, which is a fairly sizable base by doing this, but nonetheless, uh, two years from now, if all they have to show for this is subpoena after subpoena, I think it's going to backfire against them. And I think Trump knows how to play this. He's had two years of experience now in dealing with these Democrats. And I think that uh, when you've got people who now have to be responsible, that is, it's a lot easier being in the minority uh, 
where you can simply be a backbiter and, and complain and criticize. But now they're going to have leadership positions within the House, and they're going to have to deliver. Because in two years, they're going to have to explain what it is they accomplished other than issuing a number of subpoenas. So um, if Republicans are smart, they're taking notes, you know, taking down names uh, and making sure that in two years that uh, people are reminded of this. But in the meantime, it's very unfortunate that this is where we are in the country, that we've got politicians who are more involved in politics as opposed to governing for you know the politics is fine during the election season and of course we're no babes in the woods we know politics permeates everything at all times but there should be a period of time in which governance takes precedent and we're not seeing that right now people are acting like children um, and it's not helping the country at all do you think that the primary reason for this is to get Trump or just to limit the ability to get for him to get anything done in the last two years before 2020? Because as we know, you know, with although it hasn't always been, you know, a tremendously strong support of his his Republican colleagues in the Congress um, because of the swamp and the establishment and so on and so forth. But uh, do you think that they're just trying, you know, he's done so many great things between the tax reductions and uh, and all of the other things that we list on a regular basis. Is this just to neuter him? so that he spins his wheels for the next two years fighting subpoenas and fighting investigations as opposed to getting things done. Yeah, I think it's a little of both, but I think the principal um, aim is to get Trump. From a political perspective, they made him the boogeyman, and he's just a bad man. It's, it's hilarious. Every time you go past CNN, which is, you know, the only place you see it are malls and, and airports, but it's all Trump all the time, and he's the worst person in the history of the world. Of course, he's a Nazi, or he enables Nazis, and, and they, they, they're over the top. And this is for the political imperative of making him so distasteful, so toxic, that it will draw the rabid base out and others and shame, uh, quote-unquote, um, you know, normal Republicans into voting against Donald Trump. At least that's the aim. I do think they also want to stop him because he has been, let's face it, in his first two years, he's done more than any conservative president of, in our lifetime. And he has rolled back so... Obama, with the exception of uh, the remnants of Obamacare that still exists, there's really hardly any evidence that uh, President Obama was president for eight years. Trump has rolled back, not just rolled back, but he's rolled back, reversed, and gone the opposite direction of what Obama's done. There's hardly anything left of his legacy. And, uh, and, uh, and that's a good thing, obviously. But he's gone far beyond that in terms of promoting the conservative agenda and getting federal judges uh, appointed at a record pace, rolling back regulations, you name it. Uh, it's incredible. The Iran nuke deal, which is one of the greatest things that he's accomplished in terms of foreign policy. So the, the Democrats are, are very concerned. They see their agenda that over eight years they put into place completely eliminated in two years. And he's going far beyond that. But nonetheless, I do think they got to get Trump. That's the political imperative. Get Trump, make him toxic, and smear the rest of Republicans who are standing behind Trump as being somehow, you know, distasteful that, you know, that uh, right. upstanding Americans wouldn't vote for him. Very well said, Peter Kirsten. Now, Peter, of course, is, uh, in addition to being a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights and an attorney, a noted, celebrated, best-selling author. Make sure you pick up in paperback Target Omega or in hardcover Second Strike. And, Pete, when's uh, number three coming out? It's coming out in May. I'm, coming you know, out in May. It, it, and uh, I got number four in the works, too, because I'm, I'm feeling dangerous. 
<laughs> Attaboy, Baker. Thank you, Peter Kirsten. I will catch up again very soon, sir. Thanks, Thank Bob. you. You got it. Michael Goldstein, uh, my friend from Proclaiming Justice to the Nations, is on his way down to Columbus in a car right now. He's going to interrupt his drive to talk to us about an extraordinary piece of legislation that could protect your child's conservatism and his his or her freedom of speech on an Ohio college campus. This matters a great deal. We're going to talk to you about what that means when Michael Goldstein joins us next. Progressive Democrats, please be aware you have now entered the place where political correctness goes to die. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The Answer. It is every bit of that at 1036. Thanks for joining us. We've got 24 minutes of outstanding awesome left for you. It's already been an outstandingly awesome show. Great conversations with Eric Eggers, author of Fraud, How the Left Plans to Steal the Next Election, and then, of course, Peter Kirstenau. Now, I want to say uh, good morning to my friend Michael Goldstein, who uh, with whom I spoke yesterday out of Fast Eddie's in Parma for a different reason. Of course, Michael is a United States Navy veteran, and uh, we were honoring all veterans yesterday. Today, Michael joins us in a different capacity, uh, in large part as uh, his uh, representative uh, proclaiming justice to the nations. He is the Ohio State Director for that important organization. On his way down to the State House to give some testimony in support of free speech on college campuses. Michael, good morning. How are you, sir? Good morning, Bob. I'm fine. I'm driving through some light snow at the moment. Now, are you driving or are you being driven? Because I don't want to be responsible for an accident here. No, I've got my hands on the wheel, and I'm driving, and I'm not going to read any of my documents while I'm doing that. <laughs> well, I don't. I would imagine knowing you, you don't have to. You've got it memorized, uh, uh, just based on what I know of you. All right, Michael Goldstein, let's talk about this a little bit now. This bill, uh, Forming Open and Robust University Minds Act. Tell me who's behind this, uh, uh, Michael, and then tell us about your involvement. Well, um, I would say that the outside organization is Citizens for Community Values. Uh, they're very much, uh, they've been working on this bill. I've had a little input into it. And the uh, sponsors in the Ohio House are uh, Representatives Atani and uh, Andy Brenner. So um, they are the sponsors and uh, more power to them for, for uh, bringing this bill forward. Give us a thumbnail sketch of what this is. I think the title is pretty self-explanatory. I reviewed this yesterday after you gave it to me, so I kind of gave a little bit of hints as to what the goal is here as well. But give us uh, your description of the bill, and then we'll talk about uh, what's happening today in Columbus. Right. It's a free speech bill. Uh, We all know that free speech is being uh, abridged on campuses um, in a discriminatory way. And it's really a shame that free speech is no longer an American value. It just seems to be on one side of the aisle, and the other side is trying to restrict freedom of expression to their own political persuasion. But this bill makes up for that. It requires universities to um, enforce and protect free speech on campus in a neutral way um, regarding uh restriction of speakers who can come to the campus. It has to be completely neutral. Um, you can't put undue burdens on speakers coming to campus. And, and I think very important... Michael, let me interrupt for a second yeah. just to clarify something sure. that you just said. It doesn't require the speakers to be neutral. 
It requires the colleges to be neutral in terms of how they handle them or how they greet them, how they approve of or, or, uh, or disapprove of their, um, uh, you know, their, their presence on campus, correct? The speakers don't have to come in and be yep. neutral. They can be one side or the other of a political debate or a social debate or construct, correct? Right. It's the the uh, administrators of the university have to act in a neutral manner in allowing all of these people to come to campus. They can't restrict them because they don't like their point of view, as now, happens often. Now, let, let me follow up on something else you said in that little description, Michael. You said it would require colleges and universities to do this. What does that mean? What measures are be, would be implemented if this bill becomes law that would make, you know, that would require them and compel them to do that? Are we talking fines? Are we talking some sort of other punitive measures being taken against the schools? And moreover, how will those things be evaluated? You know, if a university is saying, no, we did it fairly, we did it neutrally, um, uh, but somebody else says, no, you didn't because of A, B, C, or D, is there going to be a board? How would all of that be done? Well, the, um, Universities, the, the new, the new uh, bill requires universities to provide a report by within, I believe, 180 days of the passage of the act, um, showing exactly how they are going to administratively handle this to make sure that things are done neutrally and that all speakers will be accommodated and that students can have the right of free speech any place on campus, basically, that isn't restricted to all students. There's, you know, like the powerhouse, students aren't allowed to go in there. Um, of course, nobody can be allowed to go in there and speak. But basically, the entire campus uh, will be amenable to free speech. And the universities can't restrict it with, um, oh, like free speech zones. They said, well, you can only talk to this 10-foot square area and have free speech. No, it's got to be everywhere on campus. And the university has to provide a report of the state on how they are going to uh, administer this in a fair and neutral manner. And if, in fact, in practice, they are not doing that, there is a cause of action and individuals can sue universities. And um, the state has waived sovereign immunity, meaning that uh, the state normally can't be sued without its permission. In this bill, the state specifically waives sovereign immunity so that people who are aggrieved by a university's failure to uh, protect their free speech can sue them. Um, Mike, to, to whom does the do, do the universities have to give this report within 180 days? Uh, to to, a, to a, a house body, an Ohio house body or a committee, or, or is there going to be a special board created that then will look at all of these reports by all the universities and determine whether or not it's satisfactory or not? How do, how's that going to be implemented? Well, not having actually memorized it like you thought I did, um, I would have to turn to the correct page <laughs> that talks about this, about the report. I'm not going to do that, Bob. You no, that's okay. You're driving. But but, but but just to be clear, there uh, would it be a body or would, I mean, a separately created entity uh, that would review these things, um, or would it be an existing committee in the Ohio House? Can, do you know that much? No, I don't think it's a committee in the House. I think okay. it's, it may be the... Uh, the chancellor or someone like that, but I'd have to look. I don't really remember to whom the report is. Okay. Well, well, here's 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 what I want to get a little bit more in depth on, Michael. Is um, we're talking to Michael Goldstein, oh, by, by the way. way those, yeah. Those, Bob, those policies have to be posted on the university's website, and um, they they have to be. Uh, I believe they said you can't force people to go through more than 
three clicks to get to them. People have to be able to find them and read them and know what they're dealing with. That's good. That's very good that, that, to, to make sure that it's right there, it's transparent, it's front and center, so everybody, nobody can claim ignorance of the rules. That's a very good point. But, Mike, I wanted to ask about more um, in-depth issues on free speech on campuses. What I mean by that is, okay, you can, uh, let's say the, the school must be neutral when it comes to requests to have speakers on campus who might be politically um, partisan one way or another, and that's fine. But what I find to be the biggest problem, even bigger than speakers on campus, is students on campus who are forced into silence and, and compliance with what is generally perceived to be, and I don't think there's anybody listening to this show right now, and yourself included, who would, who would disagree, you know, a liberal lean on campus and conservative-minded students are forced to be, keep their mouths shut or else uh, suffer the harassment, the intimidation. And in some cases, by the way, you know, grades uh, are being handed out uh, by liberal professors that are less than what is earned because they disagree with the student's point of view. Is there anything in this bill that would help protect the freedom of speech for the students, not just the speakers who come to campus? It's every member of the university community, including students and invited guests and, and professors. They're, they're all to be granted free speech enforced by the university. So if a liberal professor, I think it can be interpreted to say that if there's a liberal professor whose students uh, are giving a talk, you know, someplace on the campus, and they get graded down because of it, I think that would be a violation that's actionable, um, and the professor could be sued, and the university could be sued. Um, so, so again, what I would fall back on as far as my questions, and I'm sure you'll probably get some of this when you go to testify today, when you testify before this committee, um, again, how would that be proven? How would a student go about proving I'm being harassed or I'm being discriminated against because, well, for example, let's tie the two together since I'm talking about students, free speech and speakers, free speech. Um, Okay. Uh, a student wants to, a student group on campus wants to bring in Ben Shapiro, which we can talk about because he's going to be participating in this testimony as well today. But Mike, let's, let's just say student group at, uh, uh, X university, and I don't mean Xavier, I'm just saying X is in, is in unknown university on, on, in uh, the state of Ohio. They want to bring in Ben Shapiro. And by the law, if we pass this thing, the, the university has to accept him and cannot deny him his, his, uh, opportunity to speak here because of his beliefs and because of complaints and potential violence that might be threatened by groups who don't want to hear from Ben Shapiro. And that's what's going on all over the country today. But, so they may have to take the speaker, but it doesn't mean that the students who want him aren't going to be harassed and intimidated and, and driven into, you know, uh, kind of a forced submission. Uh, by other students and by other pr- groups uh, in the university that pressure them. So th- how would how would those things be adjudicated, if you will, by this board or by this body, this entity that's going to be created, so that, yeah, they have to take the speaker, but it doesn't mean they can't torture the ones who invited the speaker? Well, I think they would be adjudicated by complaints filed in court. Uh, the rule of law, the student. So the student was, so the student, so the student, and, and this is, this is the problem, I guess, Mike, or not a problem, but I mean, I'm just looking at all the angles here. A student would essentially have to 
hire an attorney and file a lawsuit if they're being harassed or a group of students or if they're being harassed by the massive majority of liberals who don't want to hear Ben Shapiro or don't want to hear you know any number of conservative speakers on campus because they're going to call it hate speech and they're going to call it racism and bigotry and so on and so forth. Essentially, uh, those students are going to have to undergo some legal fees in order to avail themselves of this defensive, um, you know, this bill that defends their right to free speech. No, probably not. For instance, I believe in the materials I gave you. Well, it's in my testimony where I talk about San Francisco State University and the problems they have there. That resulted in a lawsuit, uh, in a lawsuit filed by the affected students and by members of the outside community who were invitees to the speaker's uh, talk. Yes, and it they does. Were represented by, they were represented by public service, public interest law firms who don't charge them for the services. And once uh, two or three of these get adjudicated, and it costs the university and the state government a lot of money to, to pay the, the damages of mm-hmm. uh, the judgments, uh, I think uh, the universities will... Uh, fall into line and protect students from this. Got it. That's that. That's a that's a great answer. And I am looking at your testimony as prepared for uh, delivery today before this Ohio uh, uh, House committee. Uh, you, you, I mentioned Ben Shapiro, and you told me about this yesterday that he is coming in. Now he, of course, is based in California. Uh, this is a this would be an Ohio law. Excuse me, it's an Ohio bill that would be an Ohio law. Uh, and, but obviously it matters. Uh, you know, it matters in all fifty states, uh, quite obviously. Uh, and it's being driven by Citizens for Community Values, values which is also an Ohio group. Tell me about Ben's involvement and how you got uh, uh, came to be partnering with him in this. Well, I wasn't the one who called him. Uh, okay. Now, now Ben is coming in. He's going to be speaking at the Ohio State University tonight. Fantastic. So, uh, he's not. He's not just coming in to testify. Um, he will be there. And if you watched any of his videos where he is being harassed on stage and not being permitted to speak, mm-hmm. and someone pulls the fire alarm. All of that would be actionable, and and um, and if you add in to this, this 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 new statute is complementary with the lawsuit based on the first and fourteenth amendments, freedom of speech, and applying it to the states, and Title Six of the Civil Rights Act of nineteen sixty four, which prohibits discrimination based on ethnicity and uh, and other other things, and. Um, if you notice in the language of this statute, uh, the the plaintiff who is aggrieved can file a lawsuit against the university and against university administrators in their official capacity. But under Title VI, they can file a lawsuit also against the university administrators in their individual capacities and um, get a personal judgment against them. So, so in the California case where uh, the speaker was being overridden by bullhorns and people physically threatening the speaker. Right. And uh, the, the organizers asked the university police who were present to uh, protect them, protect the speaker from the harassers. Uh, the admini- school administrators on site told the police to stand down. Now, uh, those people would all be liable in their, to uh, a personal lawsuit for the damages uh, imposed upon the speaker at the university community, the invitees, basically. So it's a very powerful weapon uh, to protect the public. And that's the other half. Part of it is 
university has to guarantee free speech, but then under this this new law, the university will have to protect um, the the speakers from harassment and intimidation um, for what is well um, uh, people who are on the outside trying to stop them from speaking. It'll be the university's responsibility to make sure that, that they are not shut down. Um, Mike, uh, uh, let me ask you this. What, what is your confidence level on this passing? You told me that this bill is being proposed, and I know I have it in front of me as well because I've read it, uh, proposed by uh, Antoni and Brenner. It's got a couple of co-sponsors, Wiggum, Becker, and Marin. Um, you know, oftentimes a bill's chances of success can be measured by the number of co-sponsors. This is a relative few. What is your feeling on the chances of getting this thing passed? I think uh, more co-sponsors will sign on after it's uh, heard in committee. I think there will be more, um, and I believe the constituents, often, all of us, need to call and email and write to our representatives and ask them to sign on as co-sponsors to this bill, which is HB 758. Uh, people can take a look at it online, and they should ask, their representatives to sign on as co-sponsors. As happened with HCR 10, we don't want the state to be sued over over, uh, not providing protection for free speech. That's embarrassing to the state, embarrassing to the university, and it's very expensive, and why should we have to put up with it? Um, I think a a lot of representatives will sign on because they see the internal logic of it, they understand that free speech is not being protected now to the extent it should be, and um, that they should um, want to sign on to make sure it is protected. And I would hope this would be a bipartisan uh, sponsorship. I would too. I, I I cannot imagine any justification, you know, as to as to why anybody would oppose this uh, on the Democrat side or the Republican side, other than the fact. Of the status quo, Michael, as you know, the status quo is that Democrat liberal thinking controls college campuses and the fewer conservative voices they allow to visit campus to speak or voices that are already on campus in the form of students, um, you know, the, the more they keep control of the of the you know, of the the, the younger voters. Uh, they don't want them to be exposed to conservative thought and conservative ideals because it could actually cost them votes in future elections. And that's the only reason I could see them being partisan about this and opposing, uh, you know, such a such well, a bill. Go ahead. Last thought. The research, the research shows that um, if you look at the research by the Abha Initiative, A-M-C-H-A Initiative, they track anti-Semitic incidents on college in real time. Very interesting. It's updated like every two weeks. But they produced a piece of research that showed that in universities, uh, which have um, at a high level uh, dash studies departments, gender studies, women's studies, uh, ethnic studies, black studies, you find where there are tenured professors and department heads in those uh, disciplines, you find um, a much uh, greater degree of conservative speakers being excluded from from the campus because they don't want them there. And this will protect against that. You also find that where that's the case, that there are an increasing number of anti-Semitic incidents on campus where those studies are in the ascendance at a high level in the universities. 
and uh, the uh, empirical data is there, uh, and I can provide that to you at a future time if you'd like. Um, but it's uh, it's terrible to read it. So they well, put a lot of pressure. These professors and department has put a lot of pressure um, on students not to invite. For instance, I, I, I know they do, and that and, and that's exact. Or excuse me, Michael, that's exactly what I was talking about when I'm worried about how they're going to va- uh, evaluate these things because those pressures sometimes are only well, you know, word of mouth and not provable, and that's the issue. I've got to go here, Michael. I want you to get back to driving with both hands. Well, you already have both hands on the wheel. That's good, but take your attention off of me. Stay safe on your way down to Columbus, and thank you for going down there and fighting for free speech on college campuses. That's Michael Goldstein. We're back right after this. Price of the onions, right? Otherwise, I'm paying for the onions, but I'm not receiving any onions. Go to LibertyMutual.com for a customized quote and you could save. Liberty, 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 Liberty. Coverage is underwritten by Liberty Mutual Insurance Company and Affiliates. Equal housing insurer. All right, it's uh, that time. Uh, thank you so much to Michael Goldstein for a great conversation about what's going on with uh, that bill, very important bill, uh, Forming Open and Robust University Minds Act. He's on his way down to Columbus to fight for that, so make sure you support him. And as he said, call your representative, your state rep, if you can, and, and uh, try to tell them we need more co-sponsors for that. Thanks also to Peter Kersenow, and thanks also to Eric Eggers, uh, author of Fraud. Make sure you get that book as well at, at uh, voterfraudbook.com. Thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Enjoy the silence.